for the message this morning. We're in Luke chapter 15. What's commonly called the parable of the prodigal son. Um, I, I think a better name for it is also known as the parable of the lost son. Because in this chapter, we do see two other parables, which we'll look at briefly. One is a lost sheep. One is a lost coin. And third is a lost son. All are being sought by those to whom they belong. Before we get into the parable, though, we need to get some background for context. So look back at verses 1 and 2 of this chapter. Verse 1 and 2. Then drew near unto him all of the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes were happy and excited and praised the name. No, that's not right. They murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. The nerve of the Messiah, the shepherd of the sheep, eating with sinners, right? They should have been excited. They should have been happy. But instead they murmured and they complained. By the way, things haven't changed much in 2,000 years. Some churches, what do they do? They murmur and they complain when the sinners, when the outcasts, Come into their midst. So the Pharisees and scribes are complaining about Jesus receiving sinners. They believed that some people were beyond salvation. And when I say that, let me say, they believed that some people were beyond earning salvation. They didn't deserve salvation. See, the scribes and Pharisees, they believed that they earned their righteousness. They earned, they deserved God's favor, right? Remember the rich man and Lazarus? Well, the rich man finds himself cast out into hell. Righteousness, or righteousness, Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom, right? That, that, that term in the bosom of Abraham, that's referring to position, right? Um, he was in a place of nearness and closeness to Abraham, right up on Abraham's breast. Just, just Abraham is there to, to comfort him. And that, that rich man, his thought wasn't, oh, praise the Lord, he was, he's saved. It was, I deserve, who, how dare he be there, right? And so Abraham, I'll tell you what, he's still just a servant. Why don't you send him to get me some water to cool my tongue, right? He, he found himself cast out while the one he thought should be cast out was actually brought near. These Pharisees better listen to that story. These Pharisees and these uh, scribes, they didn't want to dirty themselves with the common sinners. They were above the common sinners. Salvation was something for the moral, for the rich, for the educated in this society. That's how it was looked at, right? Salvation, godliness is for those who deserve it, those who are good breeding, those who are well-educated, who, who are the upper echelon of society. That's who, that's who religion is for. It's not for these sinners over here. That's why the disciples were confused in Mark chapter 10 when Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were shocked, right? They were shocked. Their, their response to Jesus was, well, who can be saved? Salvation's for them. If they can't be hardly be saved, how can anyone be saved? And Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. By the way, we, 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 we really abuse that verse, don't we? Right? We want to open the pickle jar. With God, all things are possible. We want to get our degree in college. With God, all things are possible. The context there is salvation. Right? It's only by God that people are saved. Nobody deserves it. 
that's the message to those disciples and to those Pharisees is you don't deserve this either. And you're looking down on these guys when you're actually worse off than they are. Jesus in Luke 5.32 tells us he came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, before you look and say, Brother Rick, are you saying there was righteous people who he didn't need to save? No. What he's saying there is I didn't call, I didn't come to call the self-righteous, but sinners. Jesus came to call those who know they're sinners, who know they have a need of salvation, the humble, the lowly. In other words, these people he's eating with right here in this story. These are the ones he came for, the ones who realize they need him. The word receives in uh, Luke 15, where he says uh, in verse 2, the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. That word receives or receiveth, uh, it's very interesting. It's used a few times in the book of Luke. It's used in Luke 2.25, Luke 2.38, and Luke 12.36. And in every case, the word doesn't mean, it doesn't refer to passively receiving something. It means actively looking for something. Actively looking to receive it, right? Um, for instance, uh, when they brought Jesus in the temple, and, 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 the, and the man, uh, was it Ananias, I think his name was, or um, I forget his name now. Escaping, but the, 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 he received him up in his arms, and he blessed God and said, Now let your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. When he, when he received him, that means he was anxiously looking for this child. He was looking for this Messiah. He didn't just passively, like, Okay, I received this, thank you. He was out seeking it, right? So Jesus isn't passively receiving sinners. He didn't put out a free salvation sign and wait for people to come to him. He's actively seeking these sinners. And that's what these Pharisees are saying. They're saying, Jesus, he's not only eating with these people that we shouldn't be around, right? These sinners who don't deserve this word of God. He's actually going out and seeking these people. He wants to be around these people. That's what they're saying. Jesus is seeking and eagerly waiting for sinners to come to him. He goes on to give two parables to them relating to his eagerness to find sinners. Okay? So the first one is the parable of the lost sheep in verses 3 through 6. And in that passage we see a sheep that is lost. And the shepherd goes out, leaves the 99 sheep to find that one that's lost. He's actively pursuing that sheep. He's not sitting back waiting for the sheep to come to him. Okay? We need to understand this. We're about to go into an evangelism conference. Jesus did not put out a free saved by grace sign and then put it out and say, well, when they come to me when they're ready. No, he's actively seeking sheep. He's actively seeking people to come into his fold. Like the shepherd, right? He's the shepherd of the parable. He's going to go out and he's going to look everywhere he can until he finds that lost sheep. And when he finds it, there's rejoicing over it. Verses 8 and 9, we see the parable of the lost coin. The coin is lost in the house, and this woman is actively seeking to find her lost coin. She cleans the house, and she sweeps it, and she looks everywhere until she finds this coin. That's Christ again, right? Actively seeking sinners, actively trying to bring his sheep into his fold. It's not a passive thing, right? He's actively doing it. And when she finds the coin... What does she do? Rejoices over having found it. So notice the application of these parables in verses 7 and verse 10. 
First verse 7, this is the parable of the lost sheep. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. There's rejoicing in heaven when that sheep is found. Verse 10, the parable of the lost coin. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. So this lady, she seeks this coin. She searches everywhere till she finds it. Then she finds it. And she calls her friends together and they rejoice over it. And Jesus said, likewise, or in, in like manner, or in the same way, there's rejoicing in heaven over any sinner who repents. I don't care if that sinner works at the strip club, walks the street, lives under a bridge, or sits in the White House. There is rejoicing because nobody deserves that salvation. Nobody has earned that salvation. It's a gift of God. He's actively seeking sinners. So our parable centers on two sons and a father. The father is a picture of God. The younger brother is the sinners that we see in verses 1 and 2, right? So he's, 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 remember, he's, he's answering their murmuring about him receiving sinners and eating with them. So the, the, the son, the one son that takes the, the, the goods and goes away, that's those sinners he's talking about, okay? The elder brother is the Pharisees the ones who are complaining about the salvation of God. The ones who are jealous of our sinners coming to Christ. So verse 11, and he said a certain man had two sons. These are the two, the two sons and the man. The man pictures God. The two sons picture the, the Pharisees and the, the sinners. Verse 12, and the younger of them said to his father, give me the portion of goods that followed to me, and he divided unto them his living. So the younger son, what was his problem? He wanted an inheritance that wasn't due yet, right? You don't receive your inheritance before your father dies. You receive the inheritance when somebody passes away. But he was demanding his inheritance right now. I want it right now. And we see here a great picture of the fall of man. Because what was the great sin in the garden? I don't mean eating of the fruit. That was the minor sin, right? What was the great sin in the garden? The great sin in the garden... And before you answer out loud and say they won the knowledge of good and evil, okay? That's true. Adam and Eve were in what in theology we call basically like a testing in the garden, right? There was a state of innocence. They were being tested by God. They failed the test and they fell into sin. I don't believe that God would have forever banned them from the knowledge of good and evil. But at that time, for that test, at that moment, he said, you're not to take of this one tree. The great sin of Eve and Adam was taking knowledge that it was not time for them to have, outside the bounds of what God had told them. That was the great sin. And we see it pictured here with this, this younger son. The inheritance would have been his eventually, but he wanted it right now. Just like the knowledge would have been Adam and Eve's eventually, but they wanted it right now. We can have, see, God's trying to keep something from us right now. We, we have to get what he has because we have to see what he's hiding from us. That's, it was a puffing up of themselves and we deserve this right now, right? Even though God, as the father, knows when they need it. 
and when they don't. When we need something and when we don't. So we see a picture here of the fall of man. They weren't allowed to have that knowledge at that time. They wanted it outside the course of time. Verse 13, And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. Mankind is pictured here, right? Having taken that which Adam and Eve were not entitled to take, they took what they took, and they went to a far country, away from God. The minute they disobeyed God, they were separated from God. Physically, they were in Eden. But spiritually, they were out in that desert. They were outside. Now, later, they physically got kicked out of the garden, right? Go take care of the land. Go. You're going back to the dust. But they took the substance, and they went far from God. They left God. That's what we see pictured here. By the way, sinful living will always bring us far from God. Don't be deceived. There's a great deception in the church today that we can have Jesus in our sin too. But I, I faithfully go to church. I must be a good Christian. Yeah, I've got my sins I hold on to, but I, listen, if you take the substance and go to riotous living, you're doing it in the far country. You're not doing it in the kingdom of God. You cannot have God and sin too. You cannot have God and this world too. That's why John, and, and I go back to this a lot, but First John uh, 2, verse 15 through 17, right? Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Why? Because if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If you love the world, the love of God is not in you. What does that mean? You're not truly a Christian, right? Because salvation is death. Salvation is abandoning ourselves, putting ourselves on the cross, saying no to our desires, our wants, our dreams, our ambitions, laying it all down under the lordship of Jesus Christ. If we're not doing that, we're not truly saved. You cannot have this world in Christ too. You've got to leave this world to have Christ. He is exclusive. He wants our full devotion. You see, I don't like that. That's not, that's, that's between you and God to deal with. That's who he is. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. I don't care what other way you want to go. And by the way, I don't just mean other religions, right? Like, you, you, obviously, you can't go, get to the Father through Christ and Buddha, right? You can't get to the Father through Christ and Muhammad. You can't get to the Father through Christ and Mary, right? Or Christ and name any other religion you want to name. But you cannot get to the Father through Christ and this world. Because you're not going to grab him by the hand and drag him with you through sinful, riotous living. If you want your sin more than you want Christ, you're taking it to a far country. You're taking it far from God. Don't be deceived. Sitting in this building doesn't make you right with God. Preaching here doesn't make me right with God. It doesn't. We cannot hold on to sin in Christ with the same hand. Sin uses us up. Look at verse 14. When he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Sin uses us up. It leaves a wrecked soul. It strips a person of all that they have until at the last judgment they stand before God a pauper. 
Sin promises great rewards, doesn't it? Oh, it promises great things. Sometimes it promises fame, fortune, notoriety, pleasure, but it robs you in the end. It steals all of that from you. It leaves you barren and alone. One of my hobbies, as some of you guys know, is going to around Los Angeles, going to, like, to visit celebrity graves at cemeteries. One of the things I've done over the years as I've visited these graves is read about these celebrities, their lives, their final days. Most of them ended quite tragically. All of them died alone. Oh, somebody may have been in the room with them, but they were alone and they were scared because everything they had attained was taken away. Everything they obtained. One of my favorite comedians, I'm not big on modern Hollywood, but I like old Hollywood. So some of you younger ones may not know this reference, but some of you older ones might. But one of my favorite comedians is Jack Benny. Love Jack, he's a funny guy. Clean humor. But he often said, comedy is my religion. Comedy is my religion. You know where Jack Benny is today? He's in hell. His body is lying in a cemetery in Culver City. Somebody else lives in his house. His car has been long destroyed. His bank account's been closed. And somebody else spent all the money. He spent all those years building up. His God left him alone and barren. And at the end, cast away into eternal darkness. One of the most famous Godless comedians of the old time was a man named, well, his name publicly was Groucho Marx. You guys know the name? What's funny is he gave his whole life. He wasn't a religious man. Didn't care much for Christ. He, he was a Jewish man, but didn't care much for Christians. Gave his whole life to have mansions and wealth and fame. But you know when I bring up his name, when I preach on the streets, you know what? I, I hardly ever find anybody in the crowd who knows who I'm talking about. You know how fleeting that is? He, he, he died just in the 1970s. He's already forgotten. My wife and I went to find his grave one time. We couldn't find it. We looked all over the cemetery. Couldn't find it. Then our second time back there, we noticed a, a closet. So we haven't been in there. What's in that closet? You walk in, and there's like a sink where people clean flowers to put on graves and stuff. And just to the left of the sink, there's another door. You walk in that door, and hidden, two rooms out from the rest of the cemetery, is a room with cremated graves, little boxes on the wall. About 500 of them. And somewhere among those 500, every time you go there, we have to look for it over and over. It's really hard to find. There's a little tiny box that says Groucho Marx. Forgotten behind a washroom closet. Nobody knows he's there. He's hard to find. You know why? It's fleeting. Sin promises so much. But in the end, it strips us of everything. Chasing the pleasures of the world is like chasing the wind. You never quite catch it. You start chasing fashion, and fashion changes. You've got to change with it. 
start chasing the right music and music changes, right? The tastes and appetites of the world change constantly. So you're trying to be in the in crowd. You have to constantly change because you can never quite attain to what you're trying to attain to because it just changes again. They just move the goalposts, right? It's like chasing the wind. Ecclesiastes sums up the life of a worldly man. That's what Ecclesiastes is. Solomon, right? He disobeyed God. He married all these foreign wives who worshiped false gods. He began to worship their gods, and he, he went away from the Lord his God. But in his old age, he came back to God, and he summed up his life. Vanity. Emptiness. I build houses, somebody else lives in them. I make money for somebody else to spend after I'm gone. He saw so many things. He said, I didn't hold back any pleasure for myself. If my flesh wanted it, I did it. And what he found? That's boring. There's nothing new. He indulged in all the pleasure you can indulge in, and then he says, it's just all vanity. It's all emptiness. The sun comes up, the sun goes down, it's a new day tomorrow, we see the same thing you saw yesterday. And he gets to the end of the book, and he sums up life. I wish young people would get this. I wish I would have gotten this when I was a young person. He said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. What matter is he talking about? Life. Fear God. Keep his commandments. That's the whole duty of man. You want to attain something in this world and in the world to come? Fear God. Keep his commandments. That's your whole duty. It doesn't matter if you know the newest movies or the newest music or wear the newest clothes. It doesn't matter if somebody else knows who you are or if you live under a bridge or in a mansion. It doesn't matter. The whole duty of man, whether in the White House or the poor house, is to fear God, keep his commandments. That's it. Anything else is just sin wasting us away. It steals from us. It promises so much, and it steals from us. Think verse 15. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. He goes there with all that money, and now he's a slave. He's a servant feeding pigs, looking at the pig's food and going, oh, I'm hungry. That looks pretty good. That looks pretty good. Boy, maybe I should have some of that too. Look what sin did to him. Eve thought eating the fruit would liberate her. She was wrong. She was wrong. Adam thought eating the fruit was the right thing to do. He was wrong. He was wrong. John 8, 34, Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Sin doesn't bring freedom. It brings slavery. Romans 6, 16, Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are. To whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Sin promises freedom, but it enslaves us in the end. Many today, or the very popular thing, to claim deconversion. You guys heard that? You guys watch those videos on YouTube? Everyone's deconverting. I was a Christian, and now I'm not anymore. They're casting off the burden of the Bible, the rules of God's law, casting off, and now we're free. No, no. No, 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 no. They're slaves. They're slaves of their own sinful nature. They're, sins, they're slaves of their own passions. It's not freedom. It's bondage. Christ is freedom. Amen. 
Because when the Holy Spirit makes us into a new person, I can now do righteousness. Whereas before, I was enslaved to my sinful nature. And so if I leave Christ, showing that I'm not really a Christian, I'm really still in the flesh, I am a slave to sin. By the way, everyone's a slave to someone. Either to sin or to Christ. But in Christ, there's freedom. Because it's a willful servant. I'm a willful servant. I've come to Christ and said, I love him. He gave himself for me. I willingly put myself under his lordship. All these people out protesting and chanting and yelling and screaming. They're not free. They are slaves of their sin. Freedom is only in Christ. Verse 17 through 19, And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. What a wonderful picture of true conversion, isn't that? He came to himself, but not by himself. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. It's God who reaches the sinner. I didn't come to this faith by myself. It's a gift of God. No one will stand before the courts of heaven and say, I'm so glad I chose to be here today. I'm so glad I went to Jesus. No, no, no. We're going to say, I'm so glad he came, he came seeking me. I was the lost sheep. I was the lost coin. I was the lost son. It's all of God. It's like a light bulb came on over his head. He realized his condition. He came to himself. This is a perfect picture of salvation, I think. I just love that picture there. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That verse compares salvation to creation, doesn't it? In the beginning, what God spoke. Let there be light, and there was light. And God looks down at the sinner's dark heart and says, Let there be light. And there's light. And I came to myself. I realized my condition. It was light where once darkness had ruled. Same thing with this young man here. Right? He was so deceived by his sin, that even when he was a servant feeding the swine, he thought he was okay. And then while he's down there in that pit, he comes to himself. God declared, let there be light. And a light came on. He said, what am I doing? What am I doing? In verses 20 and 21, the son returns home, a picture of the repentant sinner. In verses 22 to 24, we see the father call for rejoicing and celebration, just like we saw with the lost sheep and with the lost coin. In verses 25 to 32, we see the jealousy and indignation of the older brother. And in this picture, we see the attitude of the Pharisees toward the sinners who have come to Jesus. Right? What do you tell the father? I've been in your house this whole time. I've served you faithfully this whole time. You've never done anything for me like this. Why are you doing all this for him? The Pharisees were saying, we haven't gone out and lived righteously. We haven't gone out and sinned like they have. We're not, we're not like them. We've been in serving God in the house the whole time. Of course, Jesus had a word for them. <laughs> you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. 
And a little bit later on in his ministry, what does he do? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Because they're in the house, but their heart isn't serving God. This older brother, he was faithful in the house, but his heart was, was never with his father. He wasn't doing it out of love or devotion. I want to leave you with a few truths that we can glean from this parable this morning. Number one, sin is a deceiver. Understand this, folks. Sin is a liar. It promises so much, and it takes so much more from us. There's pleasure in sin for a season, the Bible says. Verse 13 says, Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. It promises freedom. It makes you a slave. It promises riches. It leaves you a pauper. It promises true fulfillment, and it leaves you empty and alone. Understand that. Understand that. There's a lot of people when I was a young man in school. I went to a Christian school, but even in Christian schools, you have a lot of bad kids. I wanted so much to be their friend. I wanted so much for them to like me. I wanted so much to be one of the popular kids. You know, most of those people that I wanted to be friends with so bad are dead now. When I say that, keep in mind, I'm only 40 years old. And those of my age, many of them are dead now. Several, several from drug overdoses, heroin overdoses. I wanted so much for their approval. But their life that I craved, their life that I was jealous over, has left them empty, alone, and dead. And, likely, cast out of God's presence forever. I look back and I think, well, what was I craving so bad? What was I wanting? See, because at that point, sin looked really good. Mm -hmm. Oh, it looked, like, it looked like fun. They were having a lot of fun. From where I stand now, where they're at now, sin doesn't look very fun anymore. See, I hadn't come to myself yet. God hadn't commanded light to shine out of darkness. I'm so thankful he did. Amen. Or that would have been me. But it left all of them. Even those who are still alive. Facebook's a wonderful tool. You can find people, check up on them 20 years later. You know what I often find? That many of the people I crave the approval of, that I want to go off into sin with, they're miserable people. They're getting old, as we all are, and bitter and empty because they've given their lives to this world and to sin. It only robs you. There's no glory in it. Sin is a deceiver. Secondly, salvation is a work of God. Verse 17. When he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? Sin deceives us, but Christ saves us. Amen. It's all of God. Okay? It's all of God. He seeks the sinner, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. You say, well, the father didn't go out seeking the son. No, but he was anxiously looking for him. He saw him coming when he was a great way off. And God brought him to himself. As he's coming home, the father is out looking again, saying, is he coming back today? 
Is he coming back today? Is he? he was waiting, willing to receive him, actively looking for him. The work of God. God brings us to ourselves. Acts 16, verse 13. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside where a prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things we were spoken of by Paul. God opened her heart to attend to the things that were spoken of by Paul. We cannot convince sinners to be saved. Brother Tatsu and I were talking about that this morning. Don't be discouraged in evangelism if you don't see people saved. Pray for it. Look for it. Ask for it. Beg for it. But when you don't see it, don't worry. You and I don't win lost sinners. Christ does. He has to bring them to themselves. He has to bring them to the end of themselves. Dead men cannot respond to our calls. You'll be no more successful in evangelism standing at Wilson Park preaching the gospel without the intervention of Christ as you would be standing in a cemetery preaching the gospel to the people in the ground. Christ does the work. You and I, we plant, we water. It's God that gives the increase. It's God that gives the increase. God must first raise the dead, Ephesians 2, verse 1. He raises us up. You have the quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Faith is a gift of God, Ephesians 2, verse 8. It's given through the word of God, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. It doesn't come by good arguments. It doesn't come by convincing speech. Folks, we're not salesmen. We're not salesmen. We're simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. If they don't eat of it, that's not our problem or our fault. God has to open their heart. So what do we do? We be faithful. We preach. We tell. We witness. We share. We give tracts. We give Bibles. And we look to God and we say, God, do a work. Do a work. Number three, we see in this parable true versus false repentance. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. False repentance puffs up, doesn't it? I'm sorry, but... You ever heard that? Somebody wrongs you, they come to apologize. I'm sorry, but you understand. I was having a bad day. I'm terrible. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you guys. I come to my wife. I get snippy with her sometimes. I apologize to her. I say, I'm sorry, I was just having a bad day. Or I'm sorry, I just had a bad headache. That's not real sorry. And she tells me that. I don't think you're really sorry. Because I'm justifying myself. No, no. I shouldn't have said that no matter what the situation. Right? So we come to God and say, God, I'm sorry, but I'm just a sinner. No. No. True repentance puffs itself up. Or false repentance puffs itself up. Makes excuses for itself. It continues in the same place that it was. You know why there's so many people in churches today who are living in open sin? Because they've never been saved. They're still in the far country. The building doesn't save. A prayer doesn't save. A baptism doesn't save. If that light hasn't dawned in our hearts, if we don't look at Christ and say, boy, he's lovely. Boy, he's precious. Boy, he died for me. 
then we're not saved. We can be right here in the church and still be in the far country. If that's you, come home. Come to the Father. And don't come to him and say, well, God, I know I've sinned, but I've done so much too. Right? No. He says, I'm going to go to my Father and tell him, just make me a servant. I don't even deserve to be your son. Just let me be a, a hired servant in your house. That's true repentance. True repentance humbles itself. Verse 19. Just make me a hired servant. True repentance takes responsibility for sin. Remember when David sinned? I mean, he sinned big. Adultery. Dare I say rape, most likely. Murder. When he prayed his prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, verse 3, For I acknowledge my transgression, my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. What David's saying there is, I've sinned against you and I deserve whatever it is that you have to say. But then he gets real and says, but please just don't, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Renew in me a right spirit. Cleanse me from my iniquities. What David's saying, David the king is saying to God, I deserve whatever happens to me, but just, just cleanse me. Just make me right. That's what true repentance does. True repentance leaves the world of sin behind. Verse 18, he left that far country and went back to the Father. If someone is claiming they're a Christian, but they're living in open sin, they're lying. They're still in the far country. True repentance brings us out of that country, out of that sin. I'm not saying you never sin. I'm not saying you're perfect. I'm saying we can't live in that far country. We might visit it once in a while. We might set foot over the border a couple of times. But a true Christian runs back and says, I don't want that. The true Christian sins and goes, I can't do this. Remember Joseph? And Potiphar's wife trying to seduce him. What does he say? Oh, I can't do this. We might get caught. You might get pregnant. There's a no. He says, How can I do this thing and sin against God? And for us in this room, if we're saved, when we sin, our first response should be, What have I done against God? And we confess it, we go on. We don't live in that far country. He returned to his father. True repentance cannot remain in sin. Number four, we see the ready forgiveness of the father. Verse 20. Oh, he welcomes him. I mean, he puts shoes on him, a robe, a ring. You're not a hired servant. We gathered around the table this morning. The Lord's Supper to remember the death of Christ. We don't deserve to be there. But he's put that robe on us. He put those shoes on our feet. He's put that ring on our finger. He says, you're not a guest. You're a son. You're a daughter. You have a right to this. You have a right to this. God delights. Understand this. God delights in saving sinners. It brings him joy. When that lost sheep is found, when that lost coin is found, when that lost son is found, in each of those parables, what do we see? Rejoicing. Rejoicing. God delights in saving sinners. This is the problem with work salvation, right? You have to earn it. After all that we can do, 
Roman Catholic Church teaches penance, right? You've got to make up for the wrongs that you do. They don't understand the holiness of God. We have violated an utterly holy God. My wife and I were talking about this yesterday on the way up, up here. God is so glorious that his glory would literally, physically kill us if we saw it. He has to veil himself from us to keep us alive. That's how glorious he is. So don't think of your sin as a small thing. It's a sin against an infinitely holy and glorious God. We can't make up for it. We can't make up for it. We can't do penance. All we do is repent and realize that glorious God paid the price of our sin. By the way, when Jesus died and broke the broken body, the shed blood, he bought my forgiveness. He paid for it. I'm partaking of what he has accomplished. How can we live in sin for which Christ died and enjoy it if we're truly his children? And then lastly, we see the self-righteous, that self-righteousness hates true repentance. Verses 28 to 30. The, the son comes in and he sees the celebration and he's angry. He should have rejoiced. His brother was home, safe and sound. Not an easy feat in those days. It was easy to get robbed and murdered along the highways and the roads. He wasn't happy. He was bitter. He was angry. These scribes, these Pharisees that the context is talking to, they should have been pleased when sinners came to Christ. But they were angry. They were bitter. You know why? Because they didn't have true repentance. They were self-righteous. They felt like their goodness deserved the mercy of God. And these people here, they don't deserve that mercy. Who are they to come along and take what we've spent years earning? So the father, so the, the, the son is saying to the father, I've been faithful in your house all these years. I've never once transgressed you. How are you killing the fatted calf and celebrating with him? He wasted your substance. He doesn't deserve this. Self-righteousness hates true repentance. The Pharisees thought they were the clean ones. They were the righteous ones. They were the deserving ones. If anybody ever gets angry that sinners are coming to Christ, they're not truly saved. Honestly. I don't care if it's out there or in the church. That should be rejoicing when sinners come to Christ. Man is lost. We learned that in this parable. Just like the son. We went to God in the garden. We took that which did not belong to us. We took our substance. We took what we wanted. What do we want? The knowledge of good and evil. And we took that and we went to a far country. And we transgressed the law of God, not just in the garden, but over and over and over again, every day since that day. Man is lost. God is receiving sinners willingly with excitement. And their homecoming is a work of God. God is seeking sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And I give them eternal life. He's calling for his sheep. How does he do that? Through the gospel. When you or I preach the gospel, share the gospel one-to-one, or give a tract with the gospel on it. That's the voice of Christ to lost sinners 
saying, come home, come home. When a sinner repents, and I mean truly repents, we can be bitter against their salvation. Or we can join the rejoicing that's already going on in heaven. The Pharisees proved by their anger they were not as faithful as they believed themselves to be. So, my message this morning, preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. God is seeking sinners through the gospel. Rejoice over each sinner that comes to Christ. The Father is ready to receive them and us by faith alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. What a privilege it is to look into your word. You are seeking sinners this morning. And you will not stop until they're found and brought into the fold. You found me. You found others in this room. Though we weren't seeking you, you found us. We came to ourselves. We realized in this life of sin, we have nothing. We came back to you and said, we deserve nothing more than to be servants. But you said, no, no, no. You're a son. You're a daughter. And Lord, you're still seeking sinners today. Through your gospel, may we be faithful to sound your word out. Understanding that it's not us. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. May we handle that faithfully, diligently, Lord. As we come into this evangelism conference and evangelism time next week, I ask you to save sinners. I ask you to bring people under the preaching of the gospel and you'll bring them to themselves and they'll realize the pit that they are in and they'll come out and come to Christ. Some may just be planting seeds or watering seeds already planted, Lord. May we be faithful and not despise those times. May this church, may churches around Southern California be faithful in proclaiming your gospel, the message by which you're calling sinners home. We heard it and we responded because of you. May we be faithful to share it with others also. You're eager. You're willing. You're actively seeking sinners. May we join you in that great effort. Bless this church. Bless everyone here today. I pray that this has been a blessing to their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, folks. You guys are dismissed.